So hi, Joe, or Joey. Joe is right. Uh, Joe. Joe, what was your first computer? It's the most important question, of course. You know, it's a Hewlett Packard 386. I don't remember the exact model. Uh, a friend of mine had a Tandy. I remember playing Joust on that thing. Uh, another friend, actually, what got me into programming, a friend of mine, his father worked at IBM, and so he spent a lot of time on his IBM PC. But the first one I had physically that I, quote, owned was was a Hewlett Packard 386, I believe. And what you did with it? Um, I broke it many times. I, I installed Linux on it and uh, completely hosed the boot partition. Linux? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I so, had... So there was, you were not about gaming? I, I was a little bit, but no, I really wanted to do Linux stuff. This 1993, I think, I had Slackware Linux, and I totally broke the computer, and mm -hmm. I had to replace the hard drive myself, and I learned, I learned the hard way what a boot partition is. <laughs> The same here. So um, I had to run Linux and Windows NT on the same machine. And there was a Lilo, Linux loader. And I broke yes. it several times because accidentally, I remember, you know, the DD command? Oh, and I there was, that, I, yeah. I, I, uh, some, yeah, yeah. And I confused the EF with the other one. So I overrode the master boot record, which, uh, and then everything was broken. And then I bought a book because the master boot record is actually a small thing. I tried to repair it, but it never worked actually. Yeah, it's the same same thing. Uh, Lilo, the bootloader. I remember that. That's what I was fiddling with. Yeah, as exactly. Well. Yeah, and, and then we had a family friend who supposedly knew how to fix it, but then just made things worse. And I took th matters into my own hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, in Lilo it was required, you know, to 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 edit the master boot record to have a dual boot, right? This was the problem back then. Yes, that. That sounds familiar. I think I was trying to dual boot it so I still had Windows and I could boot into Linux, and that's where things exactly. were horribly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, perfect. So um, uh, amazing. So I was a little bit earlier than you, but I had the same problems. Uh, and I think even I used Slackware and then DLD, which was German, uh, Deutsche is German Linux distribution, and then SUSE and then st stick with Red Hat, actually, until now. Uh, so interesting. So um, so you didn't play the game, so you just... Uh, uh, why you actually tried to install Linux on an HP box? <laughs> I was misguided. Um, no, I, you know, I actually... <laughs> my first computer experience, I think, was in school. We had Apple IIs, and I, you know, I, I learned to love Logo, you know, with the little turtle guy. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, I, I was into, you know... Dungeons and Dragons kind of stuff, and and somebody told me, hey, you can play textual Dungeons and Dragons, MUD, mm -hmm. multi-user dungeons, um, and so I got I got really into MUD in like the early '90s, and so it was games. It was just text-based, not graphical. Okay, okay, and and your first computer at home was it like C64 or? Yeah, no, this was the the HP, you know, 386. I think it was 386. Okay. It might have been so two, but it was like okay, I don't know. 13 megahertz or something, it's like really slow. So, but if you, you know, damage the Windows box and you install Linux, I think this is how we started programming, right? Exactly. It got me, you know, I actually ended up compiling some stuff from source and mm -hmm. my first programming language was C. Uh, and so Linux was a great environment. Mm -hmm. If you were doing C programming, all you needed mm -hmm. was, you know, VI or Pico or one of those editors mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. So same here. So I started with C uh, and then did a little bit C++ because um, so, you know, there was the book from Björn Stroustrup. was really excited about that. And uh, and actually GCC and G++, I think, right? So there was GCC was the first compiler and G++, I think, or C++ even. There's like the 
post-processor, whatever, right? So he he he, uh, he yep. compiled CC first and then C++, exactly. Yeah, I think Cfront, was that the name of it? But I, I remember, yeah, it was all GCC-based when I, I think it was GCC back then. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't and, really understand much about make and config files. and No, 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 no make. But uh, I was fascinated by C in and C out. I really liked that, you know. And, and, and uh, operator overloading was big back then, so uh, huge for me. I yeah. do have to say, like, the 13-year-old mind, uh, or 12, or whatever, whatever however old oh, I was, okay. like, trying to grapple with the concept of pointers, I think that was uh, quite quite confusing for a long time. And then finally, I just got it one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with ampersand and um, whatever. So what was your first program you wrote, actually, on your machine in C? I didn't start with the, well, Hello World, because I had a little book. I had okay. the... Kernigan, uh, Richie book, you know, the standard C book. And so I, I think I just typed in a few of those programs. Um, really the first thing was circle mud. Uh, I think it came out in 1992. It was one of these multi-user dungeons. I, I started with that because there was a lot of content. You could actually just change the content. It was like tables in the C mm -hmm. code, hard coded in there. So you just go change the tables, recompile. And then, wow, I just made, made a change. And then I started getting a little more sophisticated and I actually, Ran my own BBS and my own MUD for a while back then. Um, so that was the first thing. I don't know, the first significant program. I remember trying to create, you know, 3D simulations. Um, so I was really into like trigonometry and figuring out how to represent 3D worlds and got into games like, you know, uh, Doom and, you know, some of the kind of 3D, uh, Wolfenstein 3D even before Zoom and some of those. Um, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, I can't remember the first significant program I actually created from scratch. Okay, so uh, you were fascinated by or, or inspired by movies, I suppose, right? Star Wars or whatever. So with the 3D idea or just by games? I like figuring things out. And I was kind of like, hey, okay. how do you actually project a three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional screen? For some reason, I was just really fascinated by that problem. And I didn't actually know there was a like trigonometry and calculus and all these things. I just kind of tried to figure it out from first principles. And I realized, oh, this is actually really complicated. <laughs> okay. And one question, uh, what I'm curious about Hello World. Because uh, I remember uh, at the university time, some someone wrote on the on, on the blackboard, you know, "Hello World," and I ask, "Why are you writing this? What, what does it mean, Hello World?" And he said, "Okay, this is like you know what you usually do if you if you if you write something in a language." Like why? So um, back then there was no concept of Hello World to me. So was it actually Hello World or something else? In your case, I think it was Hello World. I don't know. It's like chapter one or two of the KNC. Okay. Our C book. Um, I think it was Hello World. I'm pretty sure, but I could be mistaken. Because in, in my books, there was no Hello World. So I missed the entire Hello World, you know, idea. And it was like, you know, five years later, I saw the first time Hello World. And I said, okay, why, why are you saying Hello World? What, what is it? And, and, and so, okay, <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay. So um, what happens then? You know, my career, you're saying? No, I mean, uh, what I'm curious about is your first program was like, you know, Hello World or something similar. Then, you yeah. know, 3D. And what happens then? So, I mean, it was, I'm really curious what, and, and by the way, if you started with this 3D uh, modeling or, or programming, um, you still played games or was it just game were over and you were just, you know, interested in, in serious, you know, computer stuff? There's still some gaming. You know, I was, I was a young, okay. early teenager back then. And at some point, you know, I think around Windows 95, I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to actually use this graphical user interface for some things. So I think I got a second computer because I learned that dual booting was tough. <laughs> um, and, and then I started learning like 
Visual C++ at that time. And then I realized, wow. So it's funny, the Hello World for the Visual C++ book is like a hundred lines of code compared to standard C because you had to set up like the message pump and deal with like H wins and all these crazy things. And I didn't know why everything was uppercase in, in Visual C++, whereas it was lowercase. And now I understand it all. But back then it was very confusing. Um, I started doing more graphical things. So I did actually start building some graphical games at that point uh, on Windows. And, um, you know, modding Doom and Quake was a thing back then. So I was kind of really into that as well. Um, yeah, so that took me through most of my teenage years, just, you know, playing with, you know, Windows 95. Um, I did actually eventually start doing internet stuff uh, very early mm -hmm. on when you had to like dial into these places like CompuServe, I think it was called, um, stuff like that. Which modem, robotics? You know, I, I remember my first modem was 1400 baud modem, but I don't remember mm -hmm. the brand. Okay, because uh, robotics was a cool name, so this is what I remember. I really like robotics. And it was just the first one my modem was uh, th uh, 33.600, I think. There was such a thing, right? It was the speed, right? Yep, yep. I remember I remember upgrading to 33.6, and it was, like, life-changing. I actually ran a BBS out of my house, so I convinced my mom to install a oh. second phone line so I wasn't constantly using our voice line for the BBS traffic. But it's the most exciting BBS in the world you could have one user logged in at the same time. Actually, two, because I could be logged on as well. <laughs> now, okay, so it was all, almost concurrent programming sometimes, right? Yes. <laughs> it's like the, the lamest uh, <laughs> social media play platform in the world. You can have two active users. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and, and cold start, I, I guess, right, with the, with the modem, because it took a while until it, it, it was active, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because it was in my room, and suddenly, you know, like, five o'clock in the morning, suddenly the, the modem just starts making that, that noise, right? And I'm like, well, I guess somebody's connecting to the BBS. <laughs> what happened then? So you started, so, so you, um, what was the next programming language or stick with C and low level programming? So I'm just curious to know about your trajectory. Yeah, so I started a consulting company around 95, 96. So I start, internet stuff started showing up on all the billboards and it was like clear, like, oh, this, this is gonna be mm -hmm. a big deal. And so, you know, a lot of companies were looking to, quote, get to the internet. So I started a consulting company um, and helped a few companies to create websites. And so I was doing active server pages. And um, I think this is the first time I might have been introduced to Java because I was looking at, like, servlets um, and uh, CGI. Yeah, see. I think it started with CGI because you could do C-based CGI handlers. And then I quickly mm -hmm. moved into ASP and servlets because those were easier. And different clients had different, mm -hmm. you know, programming languages they wanted to use because mm -hmm. they had in-house mm -hmm. expertise. Um, so, yeah, so I did that from like 95 to 99 thereabouts. Uh, I have to admit, I mm -hmm. wish I could do it over again because I, I should have walked away making a whole lot more money than I did. But I was a teenager and had no idea what I was doing. But it did give me the entre entrepreneurial bug. Um, you do a little bit of sales, a little bit of customer support, a little bit of programming, uh, kind of get that end-to-end -end experience, which was pretty fun. And you remember if you did servlets, which server, server it was or, or servlet engine? I don't remember. I know I it's probably like 99 I was using like JBoss, I think, if I remember correctly. But I don't know how I get started. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. So funny that you stick actually with ASP and Microsoft World because you came from Linux. 
you know, to, to the Microsoft world. It's like a completely different world. So I, I stick with Linux, and I also bought, you know, student version of Visual J++, Visual C. Those were like, you know, a box with uh, three programming environments. But I didn't like that because it was completely different and, like, uh, you know, uh, strange for me. It was like... Um, I think it is impossible to understand what's going on, and um, yep. and you stick with in Microsoft world. So why that? So I mean, why you? I mean, this is you know, if you started with Linux, how you managed you know to be successful on on Microsoft platform? Yeah, it's a great question because I remember my mind was blown the first time I realized people had to pay for their compilers. Yeah. I was like, what? I get I get great compilers for free. Why do I have to pay for it? Thankfully. So the reason yeah. I did it, one one of the clients that I actually worked very closely with was a tea company, and they were trying to reinvent everything, really embrace e-commerce. And after we did this project, they they did like three million dollars in revenue on their website the first year, so it was very successful. But they they were a Microsoft shop. Um, actually, they were okay. using Borland. Um, what was their forms package? I forget the name of it. But Delphi? they, they were Say again. Delphi. No, it was. Um, I forget, I'm blanking on the name, but they wanted to move everything to Access, Microsoft Access with visual basic forms. And and oh, eventually yeah. I convinced them to use SQL Server because Access wouldn't scale on the back end uh, for the website. So that kind of pulled me into the Microsoft world. Before that, I really wasn't interested in sort of Microsoft technologies, and that's how I got started. So interesting you mentioned CGI and servlets because in uh, in my case, um, I was asked to do CGI, but I had no idea. Um, I thought, you know, you CGI, you have to use Perl, and I couldn't understand Perl. For me, it was like uh, not, it was ugly. And the only thing I knew was Java. So I waited until uh, servlets become available, and instead of using CGI, I used servlet. And I, I know, and back then, as you remember, uh, CGI was slow because, you know, you had to start the process and it was not very secure. And, and Java was, let's say, faster, actually, because it was thread-based. So this was actually uh, my strategy, you know, to get projects because I say, okay, um, I only understand Java, but I can sell, you know, Java better because it, it was actually true. You could, uh, you could, you can, and servlets were actually back then pretty productive, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it was great. You know, it was, if I'm rem remembering correctly, you know, serving up HTML, you end up like kind of hard coding a lot of HTML in your response code yeah. in Java. And yeah. then J JSP came along and I, I definitely very, I think there's some Apache projects that predated JSP, like struts. Am I remembering that correctly? But JSPs were Yeah, yeah. So struts and JSP were the same. But the, uh, but the c company who, uh, who in, uh, um, invented uh, JSP was actually ATG and they called it JHTML. And this JHTML is like a template language, and then JSP came from Sun, which was based on the JHTML. And the funny thing is, what I recognized back then, what I found out is that if you run the JSP the first time, which is slow, but this gets recompiled, you get the servlet. So if you look at the servlet, it was like you know the inverse uh, JSP because it was whatever was you know free floating in JSP was hard coded inside uh, out print line in a servlet, so which was actually um, still remember that for 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 some reason. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Funny. So you did also some GSP. Mm -hmm. Oh, ATG. Uh, it's funny. Um, we'll talk a little bit about my first real enterprise job was as actually as a Java developer, um, and we partnered with ATG very closely. I think it was Art Technology Group, which was in oh. Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, because I'm from Massachusetts. And um, mm -hmm. okay, my second second formative startup experience that stands up in my mind happened there. 
but I'll, I'll save that story for later in the uh, in the timeline. It's it's kind of a sad story, but it, it definitely st- sticks out in my okay. mind. Okay, <laughs> yeah. ATG Dynamo, they were also bigger in Germany, and uh, there there was some, you know, and uh, yeah, it, this is why I remember them, and they were very active actually, and achieved a lot back then. And um, so okay, so you did some GSP and Struts, I guess, and and JBoss. So JBoss could be right. So I think JBoss was a little bit too early. So what I suppose it was the uh, Java Web Server it was the first one. Then it was a WebSphere and JBoss. I think started with 2000 around and was bigger 2003, a little bit later. But um, by the way, uh, on the podcast there was also the um, the uh, guy who in, uh, created actually JBoss, which was a funny conversation with him. Uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark Flory is his name, um, and uh, we are talking about how how JBoss happened. So um, um, so you did some some Java work, uh, and you stick with Java then, or move back to Microsoft? Or what was your impression about Java and Microsoft? Because it's interesting. So for me, I. I just stick with Java, so I had no experience with ASP.NET. So if you compare the both ecosystems back then, were they similar? What do you prefer more? I'm just curious. So honestly, I was dragged kicking and streaming, screaming to use Win95. I only used it because, you know, well, actually, what was it? Lynx was the browser. And like suddenly, yeah. like, most websites just wouldn't work with Lynx anymore because people went crazy with images and they wouldn't put useful alt tags. And so... I felt like the whole industry just forced me to move to a graphical user interface against my mm-hmm. against my will. Um, so I really was not a huge Windows ecosystem kind of guy. Um, and so mm-hmm. from there, you know, I, I I did take some college classes. I ultimately decided to just jump straight into the workforce and skip a stage. And so I ended up at EMC as a Java developer and spent four or five years um, just being in the Java ecosystem 100%. Uh, I ended up at Microsoft after that, but I was definitely not sort of a fan of the Microsoft ecosystem back then. You know, I looked at things like, uh, what is it, J, J++ and some of the Java products that Microsoft mm-hmm. was putting out. They mm-hmm. seemed like just poor approximations of the great tools I had uh, that were coming out of Sun at the time. And, you know, I remember at EMC, I had a Spark station on my desk. I, I, I was really hardcore Java for multiple years. Okay, cool. Uh, this is what I didn't suspect it, actually. I thought, you know, you were just, I don't know, didn't like Java for some reason, but interesting. I was also a huge Sun fan back then. I don't know why. I just like Sun. So many of the developers, and this was hard to explain. Sun was like a really interesting company because maybe they were not about to earn money, you know. <laughs> this is why more like a hippie company who uh, who I really like, you know, the attitudes. Okay, just innovate, and um, but it was, of course, not that successful. But uh, yeah, still. Yeah, it was the first, you know, I was a huge fan of Sun. And honestly, the Java yeah. community was, the, Java was the first time I experienced what a community is like um, with computer. Like we talk about communities all the time, like the Python community, the infrastructure as code community, that was the first community that I felt part of. And, you know, going to conferences, it felt like there were a lot of exciting projects. There were companies popping up left and right to do J2EE servers and things like that. So mm-hmm. it was an exciting time. Yeah. And and the conferences were huge. I don't know I don't know whether you remember the Java One. It was like uh it was a great, great experience back then. And uh and 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 after the Java One, I would say or after the Java One starting maybe two thousand and six. There were more and more conferences all over the world, but the Java one prior to 2006, it was actually a huge experience for me. So to me, it was like you know there were like 25 to 30 thousand people, and um, and, uh, and and there were you know all the hotels, Moscone West uh, comp- and, and North, I think, was completely closed. So it was crazy. 
You attended Jabawan back then? You know, I never attended Jabawan. I was mostly going to smaller kind of boutique conferences, okay. meetups. And, you know, again, I was, in, I was in Massachusetts, so there were meetups in Boston. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't even remember any of the names of them. I just remember I went to a bunch of them. And I always enjoyed, you know, listening to the kind of thought leaders in the, in, in the Java space talk about things. And, I mean, it was fun. It was, again, I was, I was young, early in career, but it's the first time I really felt connected to a community. What happens after EMC? So I mentioned already Microsoft. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because I was sort of on the central architecture team at EMC that was working on a lot of the shared libraries for reliability across a lot of the products. And they had products in C, some stuff in Java. Um, you know, they, they had a lot of embedded, like, microcode stuff too. But, but this .NET thing started coming out. Um, and we did have some d- desire to run EMC software on Windows, And so I started looking to .NET and, you know, the history of .NET is kind of interesting. A lot of it comes out of, you know, there was the Sun lawsuit with Microsoft and, you know, .NET sort of came came out of that rising from the ashes, let's say, of some of the Java products they had. And there was a lot of things that I liked about it. And so I started digging into the the .NET community and I found very similar. It was super early, right? Because when did .NET launch? I think 2000, 2001, something like that. Um, Yeah. And so I, I sort of became an internal champion for .NET at, at uh, EMC because I thought, hey, a lot of the things we love about Java, we can accomplish with .NET as well. You know, higher level programming language, a lot of similar features, great libraries, the ability to share and reuse libraries. And so I became an internal champion, started going to some of these conferences, met up to some .NET experts, and they were hiring on the team. And it was early days still, and it seemed like a great opportunity to get in on the ground floor, building out the .NET platform, helping with the C-sharp programming language. And, um, you know, it was hard decision to leave the Java community behind because, you know, again, that was my background, way more than Windows and Microsoft. Um, but there was a lot of excitement and it was it was really fun and I connected with the people there as well. Interesting. So um, I would say it was around 2002 as .NET happened. In Germany, there is something called a Fraunhofer Institute. It's like, you know, it's a scientific, I don't know, uh, or, or how to call it, an institute, actually. They do lots of research. And I don't know how, but um, I was invited as a Java guy. And someone from Redmond, he was one who created the uh, .NET uh, runtime, was invited. And we had a kind of a fight. So there, there was like Java versus .NET. And um, what, what, what was really interesting, that the uh, Redmond guy he used um, VI and Emacs to write the .NET core. So I was stunned the very first time. It's like, you are from Microsoft and you're allowed, you know, to use VI or Emacs and say, okay, we don't care. We do whatever, you know, it works. And uh, and that was like, you know, funny because for me, it was like .NET was completely co- complete loser back then from, from my perspective, you know, because uh, .NET came after Java and we had already everything. So whatever I said, it was either it was expensive or not available. So I would say the, the entire you know, idea, .NET versus Java, was not that great back then. But I was stunned, actually, that the engineers at Microsoft used Linux, and he was really, he was an, you know, com- completely into you know, the core of the, of the virtual machine of .NET, and he used you know, VI, Emacs, and, and we had a great discussion. So this was the first time I, I changed a little bit my mind about Microsoft back then. Yeah, it is. I don't know if it's the same person, but actually the garbage collector, um, there's mm-hmm. one phenomenal engineer on the on the team who I got the pleasure to work with over the years. He's amazing. He, but he wrote the first version of the garbage collector in for this common language runtime, which is the basically the JVM equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote the GC in Lisp 
the oh. o- over an extended weekend, and then wrote a transpiler from Lisp into the subset of C that they use for the implementation of the runtime. So I wonder if it was the same person. Yeah, maybe. Was it? Was he German? Uh, no, Patrick Dessoud, he He's uh, he's actually I think French, uh, but. Okay. Peter Peter Solich is from Germany, and he's he's a great engineer who's been there since since the start as well. So I wonder if it was Peter. Maybe he's was German. German. Yeah. It could be Peter. Yeah. Um, and by the way, it could be you know someone. You know, um, in in Sun they had Bill Joy was the same story. Like he Bill Joy wrote you know, on weekend everything. So maybe you know uh, the .NET uh, Microsoft had similar engineers like Bill Joy. Lots of tales about Bill. Oh, that, I was just gonna say that that was one of the the things I never experienced before was just these phenomenal like engineers and I'm so glad I went to Microsoft because you can you can find phenomenal engineers in many many companies but the CLR back in those days was just a concentration of some of the best engineers I've ever worked with in my career and probably ever will work with and then you left Microsoft so you you stick you know with you were you were evangelist back then for .net right so I, I joined as a product manager um, and then quickly realized that okay I liked writing code too much to <laughs> to not be an engineer so then yeah. you know I was there for 14 years or 13 and a half years. And so I wore various hats. Most of the time there, I was managing engineering teams. What happens then? Well, so I worked on a lot of products there. You know, I worked I worked on .NET in the early days. I worked on um, a research operating system in, in MSR that was all about really, you know, reimagining concurrency. And basically, imagine we built a concurrent type memory safe operating system from scratch. And that was a great project. I was running the languages groups, uh, parts of Visual Studio, some of the Azure tooling. Um, so I had, you know, I spent a lot of time on C++, which I, I never expected in my career that I was going to, you know, manage the C++ group. But that, that was actually a really fun time uh, before leaving. But really what struck me is cloud has really changed everything about how we build software. And yet, from my perspective, you know, running languages teams, like it really hadn't changed much. I spent most of my time in the 2000s working on multi-core, how do we bring task parallelism and data parallelism. Got to meet Brian Getz uh, from the Java community as part hey, of that, cool. and Doug Lee as well. And so um, a, lot of, a lot of good cross-pollination there. Um, but then, you know, the cloud, there's a lot of similarities where, you know, we invented async programming and task of T and, you know, future of T and all these constructs in the 2000s. But we really haven't done the same for cloud computing. And to me, this is finally the era of distributed computing. So decided, hey, going to leave Microsoft and start a company to go try to really make the cloud, you know, 100 times easier to use for, for developers. Um, I mentioned early in my career, I, I had that startup bug from, you know, uh, starting my own consulting company. And I really wanted to get back to that. So every year, literally every year at Microsoft, over the holidays, I would say, okay, it's now the year, it's now the year. And I was having so much fun. It was never the right time. But then, you know, this opportunity kind of presented itself. My co-founder was ready as well. Um, we, we forgot about the art uh, or ATG uh, story as well, which was... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was with. And, and before we cover the ATG set story, uh, were you also involved in the project Longhorn? This was like the innovative you know, operating system oh, yeah. or something different. I was... Uh, my co-founder was as well. Yeah, that was... That was an experience, yes. Um, I, I was right in the center <laughs> of that because uh, I was actually, mm-hmm. I was helping to manage some of the WinFS, we used to call it Avalon and okay. um, Indigo, but it turned into Windows Presentation Foundation, Communication Foundation. So yeah, I was right in the middle of that. That was that was a learning experience also. 
Okay. Now, now back to the sad story, unfortunately, about ATG. Yeah. So, um, you know, we we'd used a variety of app servers at EMC, but we were working with ATG on a strategic partnership between EMC and ATG. And um, so I used to, I went on site, I was at ATG like every day for months. And it was, it was amazing because like the people there were fantastic. Mm -hmm. The technology was great. So much Java love in the air. And then one day in the middle of a meeting, people got pulled out of the meeting and I wasn't allowed to join. I thought, hmm, this is bizarre. And they had an all hands and like they let 80% of the company go that day. Um, and so I don't know exactly what had happened, but clearly that was, you know, they had fallen on hard times. And that, that was a good lesson learned for me because, you know, eventually starting a company, you always have to be prepared for, you know, you can't run out of cash. That's, that's like priority number one, you know, with startup. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, they used to have like foosball tables and free snacks and free drinks. And then, Next time I was there a week later, all that stuff was gone. <laughs> so that was a sad story because uh, it was a great team. And, I, you know, I love my time with them, but it was definitely a formative experience that stuck in my mind. Yeah, for me, it was the same because I also experienced, you know, the 2001 uh, after the, uh, how, how it's called, uh, new economy, right? So the golden days of new economy. And this is why I'm still a singleton, so I'm a freelancer since then. Because I say, okay, this, this, I'm, I know the business is not right for this. Too much, too much risk. If I focus on technology, maybe it's more fun, and it also works, right? So it, it this is not you, you, you cannot, you know, compete with larger companies, but it's, you have still fun and still working. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, interesting. So um, you started a company. So what was the name of the company, and when you st- started a new startup? Yeah, so I left Microsoft September 2016. We had a vague notion that we want to make the cloud 100 times easier to program and didn't know exactly what that meant. Uh, mm-hmm. Turns out we ended up on, you know, on it, building infrastructure as code in your favorite languages. We'll talk a little bit more about why that's exciting. Um, but it took about six months for us to figure out exactly what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so March of 2017 was when we officially incorporated the company and, and got started. Um, really got started relatively slowly, took a over a year to build the initial version of the platform. Um, but yeah, that, that's sort of the timing. And it was a little scary, you know, <laughs> quitting your job after 13 and a half years without knowing exactly what you're going to do. But I had a great co-founder, Eric, who he actually created Visual Studio at Microsoft and wow. managed the SQL Server teams and managed Microsoft Research for multiple years. And he had, he had definitely, you know, we, we knew we would work well together. Uh, and we knew we were sort of of a shared mind about how exciting a future we could build. What is the name of the company? Oh, right. Uh, Palumi. P-U-L-U-M-I. What does it mean? Yeah, so it means broom in Hawaiian. Um, it turns out it's a tribute to a good friend of mine and mentor, Chris Broom, uh, who passed away, unfortunately. He grew up in Hawaii, so it was kind of a funny... In fact, his, his actual name is Broom, but people mispronounce it Broom. So it was kind of a funny thing. And he, um, he was advising the company. He was actually one of the early engineers on .NET as well. Um, Paradox, Borland Paradox. That's the one I tried to remember that T company ah, okay. was using. Okay. He was an architect on Paradox um, at Borland, but he was one of the original engineers on, on .NET. He was an amazing mentor the whole time. He was advising us on Pulumi right up until the end. And I did, I was able to tell him the name um, before he passed away. And he said he hated it. It, it reminded him of the word baloney. Bologna. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't a good association, but I told him, Chris, we're going with it anyway. So <laughs> there we go. And it's six letters. Pulumi.com was available. It was fate. <laughs> By the way, uh, 
I don't know how I found Pulumi in early days, but it was suggested by someone in a forum. And they say, okay, this is great. This is what I what I remember, you know. I, I never tried Pulumi uh, hands-on because I usually use on AWS CDK and uh, on um, on Microsoft uh, the uh, ARM templates usually and and Bicep. But uh, this is this is my background. But uh, whatever I, when I heard about Pulumi so far, it was actually positive. So this is my, my feedback what I what I found so far. So this is what I found interesting, and even more interesting, of course. Now now you. Uh, no, you you um, eventually also supporting Java seems like right. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's interesting when we started. You know, CDK didn't exist. Like the the best of the best was you know Terraform with uh, DSL, and mm-hmm. for us, you know, we wanted to bring the cloud closer to developers, make it more familiar to them, and also give infrastructure teams great software engineering tools. And we decided like. We just spent decades building amazing developer platforms. Like that's the thing that got me out of bed in the morning is how to make developers productive. Why wouldn't we just leverage all those great IDEs, sharing and reuse, everything we know and love, and just apply it to this domain? And you know, about mm-hmm. a year after we got started, CDK came out, and you know, I would say that this is becoming more popular in the industry, and so it's it's really transformed very rapidly. Yeah, but back then there was Terraform was already available, right? That's right. And why did you why you didn't like Terraform? You know, we didn't start with we didn't even start with infrastructure as code. We actually started thinking, should we create a new programming language? And my experience from the, ah. from the 2000s with multi-core was kind of informative because we created a bunch of programming languages back then. We're like, oh, async is too hard. We need a new language. Turns out at the end of the day, all you needed was task of T, future of T, async await in the language. And actually that was like good enough. Um, you know, Rust has taken it even further with concurrency safety, but but we didn't think, hey, you need need a new language. But what you did need was a resource model for the cloud resources. Like you think about how we interact with the operating system, you create files, you create these things that are allocating resources under the hood, but you don't you don't go configure them entirely separately. You're just writing code, and there's an object model and a lifetime for these resources. That's part of how the operating system process model works. And we're kind of like, what if we had that for the cloud? And that led us to infrastructure as code. And, but you look at, you know, like Terraform's DSL, after we've launched, they have since added for loops and crazy conditionals. But it's like the level of complexity and expressiveness and the idea of sharing and reuse just seems so important to this domain that not leveraging general purpose languages just seemed like a bad idea to us. And aesthetically, it didn't didn't speak to me. This is exactly also my experience. This is why I wanted to ask you. I had um, to, 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 um, to, I did actually Terraform a lot. And what stuck me, you know, even a for loop is crazy in Terraform. So I have, you know, if I have, you know, to, 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 sub, um, to create subnets in different AZs, I remember it was, I had to you know to iterate first the, uh, and it was like a completely unnatural uh, thing to do. And uh, if statement was even worse back then, I remember if statement was like, if the counter was zero, there was uh, yes. true or false. But something like this, it was like, so why? I mean, after you know, 20 years of Java, now we got this. But what's, what really I, I wondered is why no one complains? Because everyone's in a Terraform is great, and I try, try to do something interesting, and they say, okay, but, but it is great, but it's an unnecessary plumbing you know this is like uh, uh why 
And the next thing was in Terraform, which really uh, was even crazier. You know, the, the the modules were not that easy to share. So um, if you have, you know, the Terraform module and you wanted, you know, to 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 make it shareable. So in Java, we had, you know, Maven repository, whatever. This was not an issue. With Terraform, the question is where to store the thing because everyone worked with a local state. And for me, there was actually no, no way, you know, in, in the project, I even saw, you know, someone launched uh, everything on EC2 machine and developers have to lock one after another, you know, to, 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 to deal with the shared state. So, okay, but for me, it is like crazy. Uh, to, I mean, this is absolutely... So this is what, why I look at the entire infrastructure as called like Terraform. I couldn't understand why it, 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 it's, it is successful. So um, then, you know, CDK came out or even CloudFormation. So CloudFormation, of course, you know, this JSON is, 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 is hard. But at least the state is stored right. in the cloud from day one. So I, I mean, this is uh, no one talks speaks about that because you know at least you have the entire state in the stack, and you can go, log into the console. You can delete the entire environment locally, and 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 you can still deal with it. But and, and this is a huge difference. But I never heard that actually someone says if if, if cloud formation is compared, let's say, with t Terraform, the state is like never mentioned, right? Which which is crazy to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. So, I, you know, I think there are a few reasons why we ended up with Terraform. And on the state thing, when we built Pulumi, we modeled it much more like CloudFormation for that for that very reason. Like th managing the state is so complex. And we talked to so many people that got yep. it wrong. They accidentally made a merge conflict uh, mistake when they when they resolved it and they torched their production environment or they checked in a secret or whereas with CloudFormation, Many people say CloudFormation doesn't have state. Oh, well, of course it does. It's just managed yeah. behind a service. And, and yeah. so that's the that's the approach we took, because I agree with you. It's kind of a subtle point, but it's a really important one, I think. Um, and then, like on your previous yeah, point yeah, on why... And, and Joe, um, uh, also, uh, the problem is the secrets. You actually, in, in larger companies, you cannot just check in the state to get, to, to, to Bitbucket or Git because it is scanned. So you, you cannot do this, you know, because all the credentials are inside. So so you, what you need is from day one, a solution to the problem. So you have to agree with colleagues, should we store it in S3 or wh whatever? And and in every project, I always started the discussion with state and, and they say, okay, mm, uh, I, we don't know what to do, right? So uh, for me, it is a... I, I don't even know, Pulumi, you said it, you're also storing the state uh, globally, which for me makes absolute sense. If we have the cloud and everything's in the cloud, why the state is on my machine? I don't get it. As I, I mean, for me, it is like conceptually, uh, it's completely wrong idea. Totally agree. Yeah. And, I, and just on your quick point on your previous thing, like I think the, the reason we ended up with Terraform was three things. One, when Terraform started 10 to 12 years ago, infrastructure was much simpler. You had two virtual machines mm. in a database. And like maybe your config was like 20 lines, right? Or maybe worst case, 40 okay. lines, 50 lines, but it wasn't thousands of lines like you see today. The second was, I think the silo between IT and operations and developers was pretty strong, right? Like developers very okay. seldom went and configured. Just like back when I was a developer, we didn't write SQL. Like we had DBAs to do that for us, right? Like. <laughs> But like nowadays, developers are much more hands-on with the uh, with the infrastructure. Um, I think the third thing is, you know, every domain-specific language ends up growing up to be a general-purpose language eventually, uh, if if left to its own devices, because you need for loops, you need these things, and, and you bend and twist yeah. it to the point where, 
hey, why didn't we just start with the general purpose language to begin with? And I think that's where Terraform uh, is. Exactly. And uh, I also have a suspicion that, um, uh, the, or suspicion, so I think why Terraform is successful is because it supported everything, right? So not only the cloud, but also OpenShift. And uh, what I heard a lot is, okay, we only have to learn, you know, Terraform once, and then we can apply it to different, uh, to different you know, um, how to call it, environments. But for me, I would say for a programmer, Terraform is actually trivial. If you look, you, you can learn it very quickly. So I don't, I don't think you have to invest in you know, weeks to understand Terraform. I mean, in two days you could be uh, productive, and uh, you know, and also then there's a misunderstanding in management. Then you can have a um, hybrid cloud with Terraform that is portable, which is not true at all. So I mean, there's nothing portable in Terraform because you know Asia looks completely different to AWS. So right. um, I, I wouldn't even try to, to 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 somehow you know to synchronize both, but I heard a lot you know we we have a multi-cloud environment and therefore we have to use Terraform. Like, but yeah, I mean I mean if S3 is completely different to to, to table storage or or, or to, uh, to 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 blob storage and and I mean there's completely different attributes, completely different outputs, and and I mean forget it, right? Yeah, and I think the thing for Pulumi that we stress is. You can standardize on one authoring language and experience and workflow for deployments, and but we're not going to hide what makes the individual clouds themselves and what makes you know AWS exactly. special. Yeah, that that's where people often when they do multi-cloud, that's where they go wrong. They try to create an abstraction that hides all the interesting details, um, and you know they spend more time building the abstraction than they would have just building a great you know application on the cloud. Yeah. So now. Um in which programming language uh, Plume is written? So I'm really curious. I suspect, you know, mix of Lisp and maybe uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ruby well, and... Uh, and uh, if it was written 10 years earlier, it probably would have been Scheme or Lisp or something like that. Or, or Haskell, okay. actually. Um, yeah, fun, fun fact, I do have... I, fun fact, I do have a Haskell tattoo, but that's between you and I and your audience now, I guess. But um, no, no one will, yeah, yeah, we'll cut, cut it out. I, I thought you know at least a Duke tattoo or something, but Haskell, a little bit disappointed. I thought you had a nice Duke, you know, uh, tattoo. Honestly, a Duke, Duke tattoo would be pretty pretty cool. Maybe, maybe to commemorate this launch, I'll have to get one of those. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it's, it's written in Go. Um, I think Go. Around the time we started, you know, we've got Kubernetes, we've got Docker. Go is sort of the lingua franca of like a lot of the cloud tools. And, you know, we're an open source project. It was kind of important to us to fit in with the ecosystem. I, I have to admit, I, I do enjoy programming in, in Go. I, I um, you know, there's a lot to like about the ahead of time compilation model. You've got a single binary for deployments. Um, it's sort of like Python and C had a kid together or something, you know. Um, but it is a strange language too. Um, but that, that's what we wrote in it. But you know, honestly, we support what are we now like up to seven languages or something. So we actually host the native runtimes. So we have a plugin model. So actually, we have SDKs yeah. in lots of languages. Yeah, but how it works? So you have to like you know the the runtime in Go. The state is where in the cloud or where you can. What is the different conventional? I would say. What is the opinionated experience of Pulumi? So if you would start, a, let's say, AWS project, what would happen then? Yeah, so the opinionated experience, the default out of the box, is that you create a cloud account. Yeah. Um, and you can store your projects. Mm -hmm. We call them stacks. So you might have a, you know, a lot of development stacks, test stacks, production staging, production East Coast, production West Coast. Um, it's sort of like GitHub. You know, how GitHub gives you repos, we give mm -hmm. you projects and stacks. Uh, but the state is stored mm -hmm. remotely by default. 
So it works a lot more like CloudFormation than say Terraform. That said, if you want to, you can opt out of that and you can store your state however you want. You can put it in an S3 bucket. You kind of get that Terraform experience that we talked about that's error prone, but you know some people need more control or maybe yep. they don't trust us yet. Yeah. Uh, so that's, but that's the default. We just want to make it as easy as possible to just get up and running and do the right thing. Uh, secrets are built in, so encryption is automatic. There's a lot of a lot of good things about the hosted service. Okay, and the state we store where at Pulumi servers or that's the default. Yeah, in our servers, encrypted, in transit, at rest, private in your account. Um, so you sign up. You basically. So, so this is um, so it means um, it is open source. Even if I use the open source edition, I could store the state on Pulumi servers. That's right. It's free for unlimited individual usage. Um, we obviously have free tiers for teams if you want to collaborate. But yeah, the default is it's all open source. So if you want to go offline without the service, you can, but you download it and it will say, hey, where do you want to store your state? If you want to store it in our service, hit enter. It's free. It's easy. And most people do that. Yeah, interesting. Because this is uh, actually the commercial model from Terraform, right? Because if you would like to have the Terraform registry, just the enterprise edition. And uh, it seems like it is free in your case, right? Yeah, and, and Terraform, you know, after we launched, they kind of launched a Pulumi-like service, the Terraform Cloud that you can use as well. But it's not mm -hmm. the default experience. And so, like, two-thirds of exactly. our community use our service because it's easy. It's secure. It's, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to worry about it. I think with Terraform, mm -hmm. like, only, like, 3%, 4% of folks use their cloud because it's, it's not the default. Uh, so it's really important for us to just make that super easy. And, and, and can I buy something from you? I guess, you know, you, you are a startup to, you can also sell services. So could I, could you buy, you know, the professional edition of Pulumi or what I will get then? Yeah, so we have an enterprise and business critical edition. Um, we also have a team edition. If you want to, you know, onboard, you know, like 25 teammates and have easy collaboration, uh, it's pretty inexpensive, especially to get started because we have a free tier. Um, we have some large customers Mercedes-Benz, you know, um, I was out in Stuttgart just not too long ago visiting with a team out there. And um, so we've got, you know, we've got some pretty big customers. You know, Snowflake also is a, a large customer of ours. So we definitely have yeah, nice. an enterprise that's mm -hmm. critical. Um, there's advanced compliance and security features that come along with that that most big teams need. Yeah, you mentioned Mercedes. Now you have to buy AMG, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I visited, I got to see like a self-driving Maybach, which I don't know if I'm supposed to say that uh, publicly, but pretty cool stuff happening out there. Of course, completely provisioned with uh, Pulumi, right? All the Maybach uh, devices. Uh, joking aside, actually, we are used for all the connected car uh, stuff. So potentially, I, I don't think I'm allowed to know whether that specific no, no. car is Pulumi or not, but... It's been at, great at least the onboard watch is Pulumi, you know, uh, Pulumi loaded. Okay, what I'm interested in is how it actually works. So let's say you are on AWS. Are you using the AWS SDKs um, to uh, to provision the uh, the uh, the the runtime, the, the or the runtime, the the resources, or how yes. you deal with the cloud? Mm -hmm. So it varies for the different cloud providers. We're, we're code generation junkies, um, ah. so we have a lot of code generation systems to make sure that we provide the same experience across every language. That's how we're able to bring up uh, Java so quickly. It's something we call cross-code, which is a new technology that can basically take a single schema and project it into lots of different languages. Um, so in the AWS case, they have something called the Cloud Control API, which is a metadata-driven, anytime they ship a new service, they publish the metadata. But this is so very new. Gonna, it was released last new. year. 
That's correct. Yep. Um, and so that's what we're moving to. We've, we've done that for Kubernetes, for Azure, for Google Cloud. That's our preferred model. We can also handwrite providers, which we've definitely done for, for a bunch of them. Um, we can also adapt to any Terraform provider. So if there's a Terraform provider, you can plug it into Pulumi. We take the Terraform schema, project it into the Pulumi cross-code schema, and then you instantly get it from any language. And But then ultimately, it's the provider, which is a plugin that's doing all the create, read, update, delete operations uh, using the SDKs, like you pointed out. But it's actually great because if you use the control uh, control APIs from AWS, they are very consistent, so they are really restful because the usual SDK stuff is not really uh, consistent. There is no like describe and lists. It's not uh, not all you know resources behave the same. So uh, so what it means from if you generate the code, we also get you know consistent Java experience then because uh, I assume so. You know all the resources will look similar. It is better learning experience for uh, for the Java developers. Exactly. Yeah, uh, it's it's a great point because we have to work really hard to paper over those inconsistencies when we manually implement the cloud control API. Just cleaned everything up. Um, you know, I, we were demoing some of the Java core Java team members a few weeks ago, and they said, "Hey, this this looks like idiomatic Java. This is great because you can just like mm -hmm. you know statement completion. You get the full API surface area. I mean, it's just a really seamless experience." Yeah, this is what I have to say. You now, this uh, CDK from AWS is not really Java-like. I mean, this is consistent, but you know, this this class .create is unusual first. So now I'm, I just can write it, but at the beginning, it it, it was a little bit strange. And uh, what also you said, you know, the the mapping reminds me of I don't know what you are aware of in CDK. There's the project I think it's called JSII, where they are uh, mapping you know JavaScript to to JSON and then to Java, that they have like, uh, and then in the end, everything is cloud formation basically. But I think you are operating differently because CDK is like the Java objects are serialized, you know, with JSON to JSON, and 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 then they become Terraform. What you are doing is, uh, so you are generating from the resources the uh, Java bindings, right? So I can I'm just indirectly using the control API from 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 uh, AWS, I guess, right? Yeah, we Pulumi is a multi-language runtime at its core. Yeah. So it has a type system, a schema, an object model that's agnostic from the cloud and language. Um, so it's not transpiling down to YAML or JSON. Uh, a key difference from JSII as well is you can write in any language and then consume in any language with Pulumi. JSII, I believe, you still have to write the component in JavaScript. So if you wrote, yeah. if you wrote all your components in Java, but then you had a teammate uh, join who, you know, or a team on board that wants to use Python, maybe they're the ops team, they can still consume those components from Python, even though you wrote it in Java. Um, we have a lot of our large customers are doing things like that. Um, also, I assume this is gonna be air airing after we've launched all this stuff. We actually are launching YAML support, which sounds a oh. little strange potentially. N now but I'm a little bit disappointed, but it's okay, I mean. <laughs> most of the time people's first reaction is exactly that and then two or three minutes later they're like oh, okay i can see why this is useful because where it comes in useful is like let's say you your platform team wrote everything in java and now you have some very simple users who, who don't really understand infrastructure's code but just want a simple manifest oriented way to provision all the stuff that you wrote in java now they can just have 15 lines of yaml still get all that Java goodness behind the scenes. And so it's really great for these sort of platform teams. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also a good example where this 
cross code thing is a little bit different from JSII. No, I mean uh, YAML also works. Obviously, if you if you look at the SAM templates from AWS, they're also simple. You know, to it, it is they are readable. But uh, but if you look at yeah. Kubernetes, forget it. In my eyes, I mean, I mean, this is way too long. I mean, uh, the, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Our first our first customer, we knew we were onto something when we took twenty five thousand lines of YAML CloudFormation YAML. Yeah. Nobody understood it. Their DevOps guy quit. They were sort of in crisis, and we distilled it down to five hundred lines of JavaScript. And we're like, okay, <laughs> this feels better. From Java perspective, I assume I get from you a Maven dependency, right? With all the, uh, hopefully one dependency with all the control APIs, right? Or uh, multiple? What's you get? Yeah, you get to pick Maven or Gradle. I actually, I don't, yeah. I don't know how many people pick Gradle, but by default, Maven. And so, yeah, it's one one dependency on the Pulumi Core SDK. And then one per cloud, because of course we support over 80 different cloud providers. Oh, perfect. AWS. But you don't have yeah. like, you know, one dependency S3 and, and and you have just one for AWS and one for Azure, right? That's right. Um, because we find that's that- That's great because, yeah. Versioning is a lot easier kind of that way is what we found. Yeah, because I don't know what you remember, but the AWS CDK one, there was one dependency, you know, per resource. And I said, it's not usable. I cannot just, you know, include 100 dependencies in my projects. And then they switch in CDK v2 to one dependency and I use it all the time because it's uh, way better. There's just one dependency and, and go for it. And I get you need both because you need the core and the... Um, but, uh, I mean, it is okay. So I will have to install Pulumi, you know, on my machine plus the Maven, right? Or will I get with the core Maven dependency the Go runtime as well? No, that's the nice thing is everything's pre-compiled. So all the Go stuff is just distributed as binaries. So I, I install uh, a Pulumi first, and then I get the Maven project, right? Yep. Yeah, if you if you go to pulumi.com, you'll see getting started buttons. You click one of those, and then just select Java in the language chooser. It'll walk you through the whole thing. And, you know, it's really simple. It's like seven steps, and you're up and running in the, in the cloud and provisioning resources and all this good stuff. So, Yeah. What I don't like about CDK is that uh, the JavaScript or Node controls my Maven project. You are doing this as well? No, no, no. we we avoided that. Um, in addition to, because this is this is why that cloud, you know, the fact that we're ahead of time compiled with Go and everything, you know, it's a multi-language runtime, so we don't depend on JavaScript if you're not using JavaScript as a language. No, but um, how this works? So I mean, does the Maven project has a main method? Or you go runtime calls Maven to do something. So I know what is the interaction between Pulumi and Java. So if I would start to develop, let's see, I would like to create a simple S3 bucket. So how this would look like with Pulumi? If if you know some pseudo Java code, just say it. So this would be interesting. Yeah. So you know, you declare package as usual. You import the yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. com 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 dot Pulumi dot uh, yep. Core SDK, com.plumi.aws.s3. So you import those. You have a public static main. Um, you can embellish it if you want, but you can just say plumi.run and give it a, a lambda if you want, or you can stick that into its own function. Um, but you basically write, because Plumi needs to set up context for the de mm -hmm. deployment state and all this. And so within that, then you just say, hey, you know, var bucket equals new bucket. Uh, give it the parameters, like if you want to control ACL, like make it public read. If you want to set up a website, you can set up, you know, the index HTML document, stuff like that. And then you can export the results if you want. Like, let's say you did the website in S3, you might export the the um, auto-generated domain name that Amazon creates for you. 
And Pulumi, there's a little bit of a YAML file. It's basically a project file that says, this is a Java program. And when Pulumi sees that, it knows how to spawn a pristine Java process that loads your program and runs it um, as is. And so it really is just Java. And it, there's no strict Maven dependency there because you can you can use whatever oh. package manager you want. You can use Gradle if you want. Um, we're kind of unopinionated, although we make sure if you're using Maven, it's it's just easy out of the box. Yeah, but your Go runtime calls Java and Java gets executed. But That's right. uh, what does the Go runtime actually do? I mean, because if the Java know is creates with the control APIs, uh, the state management happens in Go. But then the question is to know how Go receives. So this interests yep. me. So what is the interaction between Go and the Java process? It's a great question because this was the key insight we had. We originally forked the V8 runtime and it was all intermingled. And then we we realized we could separate these, separation of concerns. The Go runtime handles state tracking, the declaration of desired state, uh, creating diffs, creating plans, executing the plan, you know, doing the create, read, update, delete operations, managing parallelism, because some of these things can happen in parallel. But what it does is it launches the Java program or the Java runtime with a little shim that basically just runs your code without much. The one thing it does is it creates, it uses gRPC, which mm -hmm. is a RPC, protobuf-based RPC system that basically allows the Java process to communicate with the Go process and vice versa. Like so Corpo, right? Process, basically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, I worked on Com in the early days at Microsoft yeah. too, so it's like Com Corba, yeah, all over again. Yeah. In, in fact, we sort of just recreated Com in many ways. Yeah, exactly, just, uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but as it's running, it, when it when it hits that new bucket statement, it communicates back to the 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 Go process and says, ah. "Hey, I just allocated a new bucket. Track it in your state," and that allows it to interact with the CLI. And we have a thing called automation APIs, so you can actually run infrastructure as code embedded in a larger program. But in all these situations, the Go process is doing the bookkeeping effectively. But yeah, now I understand it completely because for me, so now if, if, if you generated you know, the uh, APIs for Java and I'm communicating already you know, with the AWS, then the bucket is already there. It's too late you know, to go to know. But what you did, you are, crea you are creating compliant proxies which yes. are communicating via gRPC with the Go, you can manage, you can recording the state in the Go runtime, and then you can apply it uh, to uh, to the AWS account, right? Precisely, exactly right, yep. Uh, this is actually a, a great idea, and this is completely different to Terraform to CDK even. So this is what, I'm, what I like about that, because I know before the meeting, I thought, okay, no, Pulumi, just another thing, but an, another completely different thing, and... Um, so what it means, so let's say what I also like in CDK is the concept of constructs. So what I do at a lot, you know, if I have to use, let's say, Fargate or Azure Function, whatever, Azure Functions coupled with uh, the, um, these, I think it's called Service Bus. So you can, uh, you can um, in, in, in Azure, you have to have Bicep, but on, on CDK, you have a construct. And uh, the, the Java construct... Um, you can what what we do, for instance, right? A couple of times, if you have a Fargate cluster, 
I'm defining, you know, I would like to have a microservice, Java microservice. Then I say, okay, cluster, add microservice, add microservice, and it's done. And, and you know, the entire VPC and subnets and whatever happens, you know, behind the scenes inside the constructs. I think I can do it easily with Pulumi as well. So I could create reusable um, Java libraries, push them to Nexus, which is great story because, you know, uh, we already have the entire reuse for years in Nexus, and then just pull it to other Pulumi projects, right? And 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 um, yeah, absolutely, that's correct. We have a thing that's very much like a construct. It's called a component resource, and a component resource okay. encapsulates the configuration of other resources. You can have a parent-child relationship between them. Um, and and you're right, it it brings sharing and reuse and abstraction and encapsulation to infrastructure as code, which was one of the things that struck me is why are we copy and pasting every time we set up an Amazon VPC. It's like 4,000 yeah. lines of CloudFormation YAML that we copy and paste time and time again. Uh, whereas now you get real sharing and reuse. Uh, that's one of the most powerful uh, parts of this. Yeah. And uh, I actually find that the reuse and sharing usually never works well, except in business projects. But in the clouds, it works really well. And the reason is being because, you know, the APIs are standardized. So, you know, uh, yes. the, the and, and then... My VPC is exactly what what you also have to use because we both creating you know the same VPC with different parameters. So the reuse for infrastructure is just the killer use case, and uh, and and what I don't see a lot in projects, you know, exactly what you said. You know, VPC is the smallest part, but if we are talking with you know, let's say VPC endpoint with uh, uh, with um, uh, Fargate and security groups. And maybe later knuckles, and then you can even you know have some security checks. Now there is a huge time server saver if you do it this right, and and it prevents you from making mistakes. Um, yep. I can't tell you how many customers we work with, and everybody has to set up a VPC. Like literally every customer doing anything serious in Amazon with something production, but everybody's doing it just slightly differently, accidentally, and it just allows you to just cut out a whole bunch of undifferentiated heavy lifting that we shouldn't have to. Go through, and then we now we can focus on the more interesting problems. So uh, then, something else. So, um, are you aware there is a concept called uh, self-provisioned runtimes, right? So, uh, what I like a lot. So, um, what it also tries to achieve that. Um, so, I'm of course, obviously I use Java, even for lambdas, and um, so if you um, works great with runtimes like Quarkus or Micronaut, for instance, they are even faster than than JavaScript. The the thing is, what I would like to have is that you know the infrastructure's code and the business code are in the same repo. Mm -hmm. And you can do this with CDK, but it's a little bit clumsy because, you know, you have to have two Maven projects because of the JSON thing. But I have the feeling with Pulumi, it could work in one project because your Java code is just a regular main method. It's not like you have, you know, two life cycles. So it's also interesting. I wanted to think about it, so I'll try it. So, um, yeah. Cool stuff you did, actually. With the Go and RPC, I have to think about it. It's actually a great, great idea, I have to say. Yeah, I think the thing you were just mentioning, app, app code and infrastructure code, that's what we really get excited about because, you know, as infrastructure, especially for serverless applications, becomes much more closer to application code. You know, as a serverless function infrastructure or application, it's sort of in this gray space in between. And I think, you know, building real distributed applications, that's sort of the, the next horizon for us is, how do we make this even better? I mean, it's great that you can use your favorite language, but we still have so much further to go in terms of making it as seamless as, hey, 
I'm just writing a distributed app. You know, it should be 10 lines of code. I shouldn't have to write hundreds of lines of config. Even if it's in Java, like, yes, it's great that it's in Java, but why should I have to write a bunch of this stuff when all I wanted to do is business logic? It's funny, J2EE, I remember back in the day, we're like, just focus on your business logic. Just focus on your business logic. And we're still trying to get to that business logic, still to this day. <laughs> yeah, the cool story is with J2E. I, I'm, I just use J2E and I, and I like it a lot because uh, I did just wanted to, to write business logic. And the cool story is right now, you know, the natural successor of Java E are, is actually serverless, not Kubernetes. Because, you know, the, the absolute mindset of Java E and J2E from back then is serverless. Don't care about the infrastructure, just, you know, focus on focus on, on, on business. And this is what I like, whatever is serverless, because, I, I, you know, I just learned J2E to avoid to learn ATG, JBoss, uh, Tidestone, Gemstones, and all the other stones, and uh, Silverstreams, and Boland. And it, it was like we had 50 different servers. It was mission impossible to learn them all. So my escape was to learn J2E, and now, now it's just the same. If I focus on serverless, then it works. And um, what I also like is, you know, convention of a configuration. So what we do in Java projects we say, okay, what is a component? Component is basically Java package and has a business name. But if you have a business name in Java package, this package emits usually some KPIs or business metrics. So you can combine them with metrics in CloudWatch. As, uh, yeah, CloudWatch metrics. And you can create a an, an CloudWatch group, log group, which corresponds to the service. So um, what I mean, we can, we can actually have almost like Rails-like experience with Java where we create you know, the entire service and um, and we get out of the box, you know, the right uh, CloudWatch group, the right, you know, uh, the ECR, ECR is created with the right name of the service. So don't make me think, just create everything, you know, from the information we already have. And this is why I'm interested in combining, you know, infrastructure as code with the application code, because then you are really effective. Yeah, honestly, I think um, I, I love the way you're talking about it, because I actually think of like, you think back to EJBs, and like RMI, yeah. JMS, you know, some of these technologies, it, yeah. it was all about like, let's connect all these loosely coupled components. Let's not worry about statefulness because it's kind of handled by the system for us. There's inherent concurrency in the platform. We can just focus on business logic. And that really is what serverless is all about. I feel fortunate that I lived through those times, as I'm sure you do, because there's a lot of these analogies. I will say not yeah. many people in the industry have, I guess, I guess I'm getting old or something, but, um, when I bring up this analogy, very few people kind of, it, it doesn't resonate with most people, but I, I absolutely believe it. Uh, I, uh, last year, I uh, delivered a talk with the t title like, if you like EJBs, you will really like Lambdas. And, and people thought I'm crazy, but it, went, it, it, it worked. So I got lots of good questions. So, and and uh, it's, it's really funny because, you know, people said, you know, the, the application service, and even if you know EJBs, you mentioned EJBs, if you think about you know the concept of pools, cold starts, pooling, concurrency, it is almost identical to lambdas. The, the main difference is EJBs run in one process, and lambdas are running in multiple processes. So they, 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 you have to be careful about the semantics of statics. But if you know the concept of EJBs, you are immediately you know productive with AWS Lambda, which is great story. I just know okay, this is what I did in EJBs, and this this is what Lambda does, which is which is interesting. Well, I. I will have to check out the talk because I, I feel like um, I feel like I've been a, a crazy person talking talking into the wind, but it's it's great to find somebody who thinks very similar. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, I will send you send you send you the link um, afterwards. What also interests me is um, the uh, control API. So, how early 
AWS publishes, you know, the the control APIs. So if there is a new service, um, uh, uh, can you support it immediately or uh, uh, sooner than CloudFormation? Or what's the story there? Uh, yeah. So support is immediate, which is which is really fantastic um, because. It's actually an internal requirement now for new services that they publish the cloud control API metadata at launch time. And so it's sort of built in that we can support it immediately um, because yeah, we, mm -hmm. we want to cut down on, on the lag time. That's the other thing with the Terraform providers, you know, most of them, all of them, they have a cloud control API one, but all the other ones are handwritten. You look at the Azure one, there are bugs that are like four years old that are, you know, this thing. Like humans have to go implement all of it. And we wanted to get away from that. So like even Azure, we key it off the ARM metadata. They publish open mm -hmm. API specs for the whole API. If you can just reverse it into the resource model metadata, then you can automate all of this. The same thing with Google Discovery Docs. Um, so that for us, we love that. Not every provider has those and they're all kind of a little ad hoc, but it is great for same day support and you know higher higher quality. Mm -hmm. And and uh, going back to Asia, so um, I was excited um, about Asia because they have the I know the ARM Java templates or templates language bindings, whatever you call it, and you can program actually in Java. It's like this is great and everything worked. But what I forgot is what I did was not declarative, right? So it was like imperative model, you know, and and you can only execute it once. So then I found out I was like, okay, this is really sad, and 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 then. Um, I look at bicep. Okay, it's so like bicep going in the right direction, but it's a new language, which is great. But I, I tried something with bicep; it was not obvious how to use it, for, uh, you know, the first time. And what what means in your case, you maybe did the same. So you you are using the ARM bindings in Pulumi, and Go is managing the state for you. So I get you know the ARM-like language in Java with proper state management, right? On on Asia, precisely, precisely. Yep. So it's. It's more ARM-like than like than Terraform because it actually is just ARM. Yeah. Uh, so the ARM resource model, and it, what that means, by the way, is we can take any ARM template and convert it to Pulumi and give you. So if you have an ARM template, we can take it and generate the equivalent Java for you or Python or whatever your language is. But the key thing you mentioned also is Pulumi is declarative because yeah. it's declaring the goal state. It, that confuses some people because they're like, "Hmm, I'm using an imperative language, but." The, the model, the system is declarative itself. Sometimes I joke and call it implerative. Like we need we need a name for it. Um, but but that's an important key point that you call out. Yeah, uh, I think the key point is you know if you if you if you tell people that uh, you are not calling the cloud, you are calling your the automation Pulumi engine, and it creates the state. Then it's obvious, right? Because uh, right, yeah, yep, yep. But this is so. This is really similar. If you look, you know, at the Java ARM bindings on Asia, and if you compare it to Pulumi, so very similar, right? Yeah, in terms of the uh, programming model surface area, yeah. it's just that it's the declarative execution model. And now, an unfair question because it's almost it's really hard to achieve. But can you scan an existing AWS account and create, you know, the state Pulumi state and do yes. something with? Okay. Yep, we have we have an import command that you can do bulk import. So if you want to import many things at once, you can, or you can import one thing at a time. And it import does two things. One, it reads the metadata and brings it into the Pulumi state. And two, which is kind of mind blowing, it actually generates the infrastructure's code in your chosen language that would have produced that resource state. So let's say you're 
fiddling around in the cloud console, creating things because you don't know exactly how things connect up. It's it's very complicated sometimes to know how the building blocks relate to each other. So that's a perfectly fine way to start. But let's say you want Java at the end of the day. Well, now you can just say, Pulumi import resources X, Y, and Z, and it will give you a program. And then from that point forward, now it's all under the management of Pulumi. Okay. It, I, I think Terraform cannot do this, and uh, I don't think... CloudFormation is also not able to scan existing stuff, right? So this is the now unique feature of Pulumi right now. Terraform kind of does half of this. Like it, you can actually import some of the state, yeah, but it it won't generate the code for you. And that's right. We just launched Java, and we support generating Java. Same thing with YAML. Like I, because of the way our cross-code technology works, it just like by default works in all languages, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, this CI/CD story is you can just you know run this in code build. I can just repeat it as as, as often as I like. Doesn't matter, right? Yep. Yeah, we integrate with over a dozen different CI systems. Code build. You, if you're using Spinnaker, Travis, or Jenkins. But you don't have to to integrate. Yeah, I just have to run the process. I mean, there's nothing to integrate, right? So, uh, what do you need? Basically, we we have some integrations that make it a little easier. Um, but you're right. It's just a program you can kind of run it anywhere in fact i was trying to think back what was before jenkins what do we have cruise control was that the name of the ci system cruise control yeah and hill and hill cruise control uh was uh was there cruise control one the first was the xml based and then jenkins yep. came by the way uh the um kozuki uh, koske is actually was also on the podcast we had a nice chat how 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 jenkins happened or or actually hudson hudson was the first name oh, then jenkins was renamed to yep. jenkins hudson and before Hudson, there was uh, Cruise Control, which was a completely different story. It was XML-based, but it was the first, you know, CI/CD. But Hudson was the Sun one, and then Oracle bought it. There were some problems, and they had to rename it to Jenkins. Yep, that just so, memory lane. Because I remember we used Cruise Control at uh, EMC, and I remember thinking, "Wow, this is this is like the future. This whole CI/CD thing." <laughs> yeah. So I'm, um, I'm really impressed. I have to say, I, I like the concept. Uh, with that I'm actually using so I always impressed by standards right and uh, what I don't like you know if you invent something which uh, which does comply to standard but in your case if you are you know using the official cloud APIs and you're generating code so you can say okay then I mean in worst case you know say if I don't like Pulumi anymore I could at least you know call directly the the APIs and then I will lose you know the shared state idea but this is not like you know a huge risk to me and um, in worst case, I learned the APIs because uh, um, I know now the control. Uh, how it's called again? I always forget. Control APIs, right? Cloud control APIs. What, what is the Cloud control API. Yep. Uh, yeah, exactly. that's what it's this called. what was announced last year. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's, okay, cool. it's interesting. Um, right? mm -hmm. DSL, in, in many ways, you go learn Terraform. It's proprietary DSL. You're not mm -hmm. going to use HCL mm -hmm. for other things. Whereas with Pulumi, you've got Java. You're using the cloud APIs. Like, There's a lot less risk over lock-in, which is kind of what you were alluding to. Yeah. And and I mean, um, a little bit unfair because Terraform, you could also use, you know, for the first one, what is called Vagrant, right? Vagrant uses also HCL, Packer, you could use, you know, but I I mean, this is yeah. so trivial to lend the resources, so it is pointless, you know, to, 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 to I mean, it's just like talking about JSPs that, you know, uh, we have to learn JSPs. Actually, similar to JSPs is Terraform, what I want to say. <laughs> JSPs without uh, for loops, right? So, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, unrelated question. Um, you don't have to answer, but um, 
Kubernetes. For me, it is really interesting, you know, the the whole the whole Kubernetes uh, phenomenon because on premises, I think Kubernetes is the, the the killer use case. So you can just run your own cloud on 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 premises, but in public cloud, I don't understand it because if you look how Kubernetes is implemented on Azure or on AWS, it it it, it is like you know cloud inside a cloud, and you have do everything twice. So um. For me, you know, uh, to abstracting from the cloud in another cloud, I, I don't get it. And I think it is uh, it is like maybe if you invested a lot in Kubernetes, then you can lift and shift your Kubernetes environment one-to-one -one to the cloud. But it's not exactly, exactly lift and shift, and it's a lot of code reviews. And what I found out is, you no, know, the entire permissions and everything is, doesn't work that great in the cloud. So, you know, hard-coded credentials, crazy stuff. And even... Even they had to release you know, the CDK for Kubernetes recently, which is another CDK to, to, the, to, the, to the actual CDK. So what's your opinion on Kubernetes in pub, on public clouds? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, we do support Kubernetes. Um, and you yeah, know, of one of the things about CDK, CDK like we use CDK for AWS, it's different from CDK for Kubernetes. You're trying to do deployments across the two. Like, they don't really compose, whereas we have one execution engine. So it's actually quite nice mm -hmm. to use Kubernetes on Pulumi. Um, I see what, what you're saying as well. Like a lot of folks are using it on-prem to sort of just modernize their internal practices and, mm -hmm. and, and consolidate workloads and move to containers. And for that, you know, it seems great. Um, you know, I think public cloud, it, it's sort of, to me, it's like a thread pool, right? If you prefer to use a thread pool with its own set of abstractions versus going straight to using threads. Like some people genuinely prefer that. It does the resource management, the scheduling. But what you're what you're pointing out, if you're on Amazon, you've got ECS, right? And so most customers yeah. on Amazon, if they're just starting, I will I will suggest using ECS on Amazon because exactly. it's just a easier experience. It integrates better with the surrounding services. It doesn't have this like dual control plane thing which you're which you're alluding yeah, to. Yeah exactly. If you're in Google if you're in Google, you know, Kubernetes is the native uh, yeah, exactly. do things and so that's, that's fine. Um, yeah, on the Azure, I would use Azure, Azure App Service or the Azure Container Apps or something like this, right? So on Azure, I would also exactly. wouldn't use AKS. And and for, if I invested in my own operators, and you know, then of course, or been in product, uh, which is really has to be multi-cloud, maybe Kubernetes. But even if you migrate, you know, Kubernetes from from AWS to uh, to Azure, I, I even. I even think that if you would migrate Fargate to ACI or to Azure App Services, even less work because if you if you if you look at the amount of of configuration you have to deal with, um, uh, Fargate is is almost negligible. You know the task looks is really like twenty lines of JSON. And um, but this is yeah. could also actually with Pulumi, with Pulumi, if you um, you could actually technically be able to trans translate <laughs> from Fargate to App Service, right? Because they are yeah. very similar, I could actually, I could actually, really, no kidding. So, um, uh, I could actually read from. Uh, I have a multi-cloud project. You say, you know, Fargate and ACI or Azure App Service, which are very similar because really the configuration is really similar. Even you know, um, I, I could actually implement this with Java with some translation code, right? Yeah, yeah. Because um, they are similar, you could probably you know create a little abstraction, make it a deployment time decision which one you're targeting, and. Absolutely, we see people doing those sorts of things. It's it's not a panacea. It doesn't work for all services, but for those two, for no. Fargate to ACI, really could. Uh, but but could I technically uh, use actually drive both clouds at the same time from Pulumi? That I say, you no, know, um, I'm deploying yes. both. And okay, 
that's cool. Yeah, we have we have a funny demo. It's um, it spins up an EKS cluster, an AKS cluster, and a GKE exactly. cluster, and then deploys the same workload, which is actually one of the benefits. Like at least multi-service workloads, the interface is the same. Uh, you know, if you're using Kubernetes, um, mm-hmm. but this demo then slaps a Cloudflare worker. Uh, CDN in front of those and routes traffic amongst the three. And it's a single Pulumi up and it's deploying Cloudflare, AWS, Azure, Google. I mean, it's pretty magical. Now, that is not cool. many people will go to that extreme, but it is it is pretty fun to see it in action. Yeah, what I think the use case could be, you know, if, if one company buys another company and they, they try, you know, to move to, to unify the workloads or to have to move it because of license or whatever, this could be a use case. I don't believe, you know, just doing any abstractions between the clouds because it gets too complex, but yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, it was great discussion, I have to say. I learned a lot about Pulumi. I will try it out for sure if Java comes out. So um, where people can find you? Yeah, um, so I'm uh, joe at pulumi.com. Don't ever hesitate to email me. Um, But I'm also on Twitter, you know, funk of joe, uh, F-U-N-C of J-O-E. And then I also have joedeffyblog.com where I habitually under blog. I used to, I used to blog quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I'm always happy to chat. You know, if folks want help with their cloud workloads, if they want to know how to adopt Pulumi, if they have feedback on the product, I'm always here. I still answer every email as soon as I get it. So um, would love to hear from folks. Thank you. And uh, yeah, um, I'm, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a uh, great fun for me. I expected something else. No, I thought, you know, you was like, I don't know, uh, the Node.js guy. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting background. Yeah, no, th- thanks for having me on, Adam. I, I had a lot of fun too. I, I don't get to relive my Java experiences from early on uh, that often, and it, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. And uh, also, the last thing maybe, my impression is now that Java is taking off more and more in serverless world, which what, what turns actually out, so what, what I see in projects is first, if people recognize that it's actually really easy to run Java's Lambda or Azure function, you just do it. Then with uh, runtimes like Micronaut and, um, and Quarkus, you can create uh, coarser-grain functions. Um, it means uh, they are larger, almost like a microservice, they are orders of magnitude cheaper than Fargate or, or, or uh, Kubernetes. And the funny thing is, if the functions are hot, they execute faster than Python or Node.js, so you can actually save money. And with the tooling, like, you know, until the talk, I CDK with Maven combined, this was my you know, choice, Pulumi, um, at least as good. So you can have, you know, pre-packaged, you know, pre-packaged uh, infrastructure pieces, which makes you very productive. So I think... You know, the time is right. And I expect to see, you know, more and more Java projects coming out because even Java developers don't even believe that Java runs can can be run in serverless environments. If I show them how fast it actually is, they are surprised and they are really happy that you can, you know, pick their own. I don't know whether you know it, but you can pick your own J2E application with JAXRS and all the annotations and um, and you run it almost without any modification as AWS Lambda or Azure function with Quarkus or Micronaut. Wow, that's that's great. I mean, honestly, the thing that people don't realize all the time is that how, mu- how much work has gone into making Java efficient, yeah. you know, with virtual machines, hotspot, you know, uh, heavily optimizing JIT compilers mm-hmm. and garbage collection that's been highly tuned for server-based workloads. Like, those are important, especially when it comes to, you know, warm startup, cold startup, all the challenges we have in serverless. And, you know, the funny thing is like, 
Yeah, sure. There's a lot more like JavaScript frameworks on Hacker News, but there's a lot of people in the world programming Java, getting stuff done. And I think serverless is starting to get to the level of mainstream where I I, I agree with you. I think we're going to see a lot more Java serverless apps mm-hmm. in the in the coming year or two. And the Java works that well, the standard Java, that we actually use Coreto uh, on on um, on AWS on on Azure, the um, um, Microsoft um, um, OpenJDK uh, version. And we don't have, you know, the need to to use GraalVM to cross compile the stuff. So it is just fast enough out of the box, and the um, uh, uh, um, cold startup times are around two to three seconds. And if the uh, the, the 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 function is uh, is hot, we have response times. You know, if the function is, we have some dependency injection, but it doesn't happen a lot. So it can be around five milliseconds. The response time from a lambda with dependency injection, entire microprofile with you know JSON BCialization, everything inside. In a larger function right now, it is like 50 milliseconds. But this is actually a huge microservice with 320 classes already. Is my current projects, and we have response time 50 milliseconds without you know any modifications, uh, and we running on one core. So we have two, gig- two gigs of RAM and one virtual CPU. So this is actually the real numbers. And uh, people are surprised that it works as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, just think of the cost savings of going serverless. Like you're not paying to park a VM to keep those things warm. You're relying on the magic of Lambda and you know all of these things to keep, yeah. keep things efficient. So I agree with you. And with Pulumi, even more fun. So thank you a Absolutely. lot. Absolutely. No, thank you, Adam. <laughs>